The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay. Welcome back to the second half. We'll pick up on this somewhat pessimistic note of uh, uh, how, how one goes from a very accurate sequence to a probably less than accurate uh, speculative ligand specificity to actually how we actually do get at, sec at 3D structure and ligand specificity and some of the powerful methods that are shared by the, uh, the computational tools. Uh, one, of the, one of the things we want to do is we want to, if possible, find a homolog it may be a distant homolog or a very close one. If it's very close, as we saw from that previous slide about the, uh, the highest accuracy coming from homologs are 80 or 90 percent. As you get further and further away, remember we had to, uh, you know, first you could use exact matches and then you would had to use dynamic programming and then hidden Markov models. And finally at the bottom of this slide 37, we go to, we resort to threading where one of the structures is a, uh, you search through a database of three-dimensional structures with your favorite sequence, and you, you not only search through the database of structures, but through each structure, you think of every way you could thread your sequence into that complicated 3D structure. And some of the threading positions with insertions, deletions, and offsets will be better than others. They will fit that three-dimensional structure. Some will cause clashes where the three-dimensional structure you're, you're searching through and the particular thread position you've got causes two bulky groups to lie on top of each other in space in a way that's hard to relieve the stress. And so that threading is probably the ultimate in getting very distant uh, relationships. It is limited by the fact that it really only works if one of the two proteins has a three-dimensional structure. But you can search a database of sequences against a database of 3D structures. The antidote to the limitation of having not enough three-dimensional structures is to launch a project like the Genome Project to get all of the three-dimensional structures. Now, th is that finite? Well, certainly for a particular genome, that, that number is uh, less than or equal to the number of proteins in that, in that proteome for that particular organism. But if we look at organisms as a whole, where we don't even really even know how many organisms there are on Earth, uh, then that, that number may be larger. But some people estimate that it's less than 10,000 basic folds, where a fold is the, the scaffolding, which once you have that fold, where well, there's a certain number of alpha, helixes, betas, and turns in a particular order and particular geometry, once you have that and you have any amino acid sequences within a 35% amino acid identity, and we'll, you'll see as, as this last uh, section of this lecture goes along why it's around 35%. Uh, and that's, the goal is to get, an, uh, saturate these three-dimensional structure space so that every, three every sequence is within at least 35% of one of those structures. This is somewhat conjectural, unlike the Human Genome Project where we knew we had three billion bases to, to, to uh, sequence. Here we hope that we have 10,000 uh, basic folds, and we hope that 35% amino acid sequence identity will be enough to do homology modeling. Okay, it's not, it's not currently. 
And the criteria for, the, this has to be prioritized in some way, and remember we had prioritization for drug targets uh, in, the, in the previous slide, and here prioritization for structural genomics is similar, but in addition you want to have, uh, you want them to represent the largest family you can get, but not have it previously solved. Uh, you want it to, uh, and for some reason they're excluding non uh, or they're excluding transmembrane proteins. Now this is a very important class, as we'll see in the next slide, uh, because the goals stated up at the top of this uh, slide 38 of assigning functions and interpreting disease-related polymorphisms and drug targets and so on uh, certainly apply to membrane proteins as well. And there are reasons that we've already alluded to for looking specific for programming cells via membrane proteins. This is where cell-cell interactions occur. This is where adhesion, motility, immune recognition occurs. These all occur without getting inside of the cell. Um, th this is a, a major class of uh, drug targets. And furthermore, it's not like this is an impossible uh, class of proteins to solve. Actually. The, the three-dimensional stru structural databases, more about that in a moment, are filled with these things. They certainly are the most unrepresented class, but there are plenty of examples. And there are two major classes. Uh, one of them is soluble fragments of fibrous or membrane proteins. Sometimes fibrous proteins are excluded as well. Here you'll use a protease to cleave off possibly a tiny piece that makes it insoluble, maybe a little anchor into the membrane, and all the rest of it now behaves like a soluble protein, and we know how to solve soluble proteins. Um, other times, the other class is integral membrane proteins, where, the, where they go like this one uh, <coughs> bacteria rhodopsin on the right-hand side of the image. You can see the red alpha helices go back and forth across the membrane, uh, where the gray lipids and this is very, there's no way you could clip off a little piece of this and have a major fraction of it left to solve. But this was solved in the membrane. And you can see the little blue water molecules going through, the, through a, a channel in, uh, in this. That channel is responsible for proton pumping, which, is, which can be part of the ATP production process. But there are many other classes of redox proteins, toxins, uh, ion channels, uh, photosynthesis and phototransduction and so on. Uh, the G-protein coupled receptor class is a particularly important drug target. ABC proteins uh, transporters have also been solved. So given that this is an underrepresented class and given that the structural genomics, structural, uh, genomics project will not uh, necessarily target these in a in a rapid manner, how, what is the current state of affairs for computational prediction of uh, the transmembrane regions of proteins? And actually, I would say the prospects here are fairly favorable compared to some of the least favorable ones in that slide, that very pessimistic slide a few back. Here you can get, um, as indicated in this JMB paper, Transmembrane helices identified, and there can also be transmembrane beta uh, as well, but helices identified with accuracy greater than 99%. And remember, this is, this is basically saying that you correctly identify those. And then that you also have false predictions. There'll be a number of uh, uh, 
peptide regions of known proteins which are incorrectly predicted to be in transmembrane. And this is a tolerable false prediction rate of 17 to 43 percent, uh, given a set of soluble proteins as a, uh, a negative learning set. Now that's just merely knowing that a particular segment of protein is transmembrane is a big step in terms of identifying its function. But to get the further functional um, characterization, we need things like ligand binding, which we've already addressed. And if you look at some of these quotes, you can see that a lot of the emphasis is on display and cataloging and uh, sort of hopeful uh, expectation that, that, that we'll be able to move from uh, rough three-dimensional structures to uh, ligand binding specificity. But where do the three-dimensional structures that we do have, they do to believe, that do tell us about the exact geometry of ligand binding come from? Where do they come from, and how do we compute on them? How do we read them? How do our computer programs read them? Well, this is a typical uh, file of a three-dimensional structure. This happens to be one that we will show at the very the three-dimensional structure at the very end of this talk. It is the uh, human estrogen receptor. And you can see the first uh, line is that it is a complex between a protein and a DNA molecule. And the, the, the molecule is the estrogen receptor. The third line down is the resolution. This is a technical description of the uh, X-ray diffraction pattern. Uh, it gives you an upper limit to how, pre how precise it is. It's going to be more precise than 2.4 angstroms, depending on how much statistical oversampling you have and how, how good your computer program is enforcing stereochemical constraints. A typical precision for a 2.4 angstrom protein structure might be on the order of 0.3 angstroms, maybe eight times better than the nominal resolution. But that's an important number, unambiguously uh, determined in the process of collecting it. So when you look at the literature, look at this number and look at the next number down, which is the R value, which is a, not a measure of resolution, but a measure of goodness of fit between the model. The model is the XYZ coordinates of your atoms. It's a goodness of fit between the model and the data. And we'll have a slide co coming up soon of how this R value is, is calculated. Okay, the next line down begins the sequence, and if you have a multi uh, chain sequence. Here I'm, I've, cut, I've cut out some lines for, there's many lines of sequence for the protein in this three-letter code and many lines of sequence for the nucleic acid in this one-letter code. And then additional chemical parts of the structure. Remember the structure is complicated. It's not just protein. Here it has nucleic acid, it has zinc, it has water molecules, sometimes various other things. Each of, the, each of these molecules, if you can find it in the structure, you will determine the X, Y, and Z coordinates. So the next one tells you this secondary structure. Remember that there's three basic types, alpha helices, beta sheets, and coils. And these are described. And again, I'm just showing you one line example of each. There's a long list for each of these where, the, where uh, they've been identified by either manually or, or uh, computational automation from the structure. And these can be useful um, um, as a summary of the structure. And then here's the real meat of the structure. The, the lines that begin with the word atom. This is the position of the nitrogen atom number one in methionine, which is amino acid number one, in the A chain, 
So it met A. The A chain is, is happens to be the protein chain. Uh, and then follow, following that uh, is the residue number one. And then XYZ coordinates, you know, roughly 50, 24, 79. Then a scale factor one, which is almost always one. And then a B factor, 60, which is uh, representative of how far from that XYZ value can it deviate. That's a a square deviation uh, term, and, and it represents, uh, it absorbs the thermal motion of that atom and uh, various structural defects. So it gives you some idea of the disorder of that atom. And then you have uh, the last couple of records have to do what atom is connected to what atom uh, in the structure. Uh, in a certain sense, those can often be inferred just by the distance between atoms in the structure. Now, on the far right-hand side, it's just uh, the record number and the, the, sh the shorthand for this structure, which is 1-HCQ. 1-HCQ refers to the human chicken uh, receptor. Now, okay, so that's a very dry, uh, that's the way that it appears when you uh, uh, download it from the database, uh, PDB or RS or CSB. Um, then when you display it, while, while you're solving it, if you're an NMR or, or X-ray crystallographer, or possibly uh, display it from the databases. And the two different cultures, NMR on the left, uh, tends to describe their structures as multiple chain tracings because they're, they want to either express their uncertainty of the structure or they want to uh, brag about how they know something about the dynamics whatever, uh, you have multiple chains which overlap here in different colors, um, indicating some the different uncertainty or dynamics of each, at, of each major atom. Typically, sometimes you'll show all the atoms as on the right, or you'll just show the major atoms like the carbon alphas, which is the center of each amino acid as you go along on the left. On the right is, is the way that actually a crystallographer might be, show the fit uh, to the data. So the model is a stick figure, uh, connecting the atoms as, as circles, um, and then the mesh work is the electron density, which you can observe once you have uh, all the X-ray data and the model, uh, or you can calculate it once you have the model. The model plus the known physics of scattering of each of the uh, uh, known physics of the electron density of each of the atoms, you can calculate electron density. Now you can compare the elect calculated electron density with the observed, or you can compare the calculated scattering with the observed. Typically, it's done in the scattering, which is the Fourier transform of the electron density. And that's all that this is. It's just the electron density is indicated by rho here in the middle of this formula. And the Fourier transform is just this integral of rho over uh, the, the, the phasing information, the phasing of the light uh, waves these waves, just like a wave on an ocean, has a phase, you know, whether it's up or down in the trough, how much. And so the product of the, of the uh, rho electron density, which is a function of x, y, and z, all three uh, coordinates, is, is summed by these integrals. Uh, it's a continuous uh, function from 0 to 1. 0 to 1, x, y, and z. This is why 0 to 1. It's because this is a repeating structure. It has a little... Uh, rectangular, uh, you know, kind of cube of space around it, uh, which repeats. 
And so all you really need to do to calculate the entire electron density is to think about this little cube, which goes from 0 to 1 in those arbitrary units. In order to, but now that's how you can get from one space to another, from the electron density to the scattering that you actually observe when, the, when you shine X-ray light upon a repeating crystal structure. But now you want to adjust the model, adjust those atoms in the previous slide, uh, so that you get maximize the fit, that is to say minimize the difference between the observed scattering F, F0 and the calculated scattering Fc. Because you know the scattering of each atom and you know the and you're trying to determine the position of each atom, the position of the atom might be a parameter, P, uh, which you adjust a small bit at a time. Um, and, that, and that change uh, is, can be approximated by a, what's called a Taylor series expansion. Here we're just taking the first term, which involves first derivatives. All the subsequent terms involve second derivatives and higher. And those are close, close enough to zero for this work that you drop them. And this, and this basically says that if we're going to adjust this parameter, we can uh, get a feeling for how fast to adjust it, which is based on the sensitivity of the scattering, the F, the derivative of F calculated with respect to each parameter. The parameters would be x, y, and z coordinates, or they could be some kind of rotational parameters. So this is to give you a flavor for how it's actually done. This is how you actually get from the scattering off of a crystal. The crystal has the advantage. In principle, you can do a scattering experiment from single molecules. But single molecules, the signal is too weak, and it's swamped out by the noise of random uh, other photon events. Um, so by having a large number of them in an ordered array, they all kind of cohere, and they basically do your statistics for you. They, they integrate, and you get the value of the statistics of billions of molecules without having to observe each of the billions of molecules and then do the computation in the presence of a huge noise. So that's what the crystal is all about. NMR also requires billions of molecules, and so they both have the big demand of requiring large amounts of pure molecules. And that's one of the reasons that membrane proteins have uh, been harder to get at. It's harder to get large amounts of pure membrane proteins. Now, these two methods, NMR, which I won't describe, and, and extra crystallography that I barely described, share with the ab initio methods of protein structure prediction certain uh, key computational components. And these are embedded in a combined system which does crystallography NMR and some of these molecular mechanics that keeps the structure. You can imagine that the, if the structure started blowing off uh, atoms going in weird directions, it could still minimize the function if you have a local minimum. But if you hold the, the chemistry intact and satisfy what you know about molecular mechanics of chemicals, then you actually can, can fit a structure from further away. Now, here's the R factor I said we would come back to. As you do this refinement, as you adjust the positions of each of the atoms, as your computer adjusts the position of each of these atoms, you compare the scattering of the observed FO um, with the FC. These are in absolute values because actually the scattering results in loss of phase information. So the actual things you measure are absolute values. And then you take the absolute value of the difference in order to you know, make sure you sum up uh, positive numbers. And then you normalize, just as we did before, uh, 
to put it on a, on a recognizable standard scale where 0.4 means you have a very crude structure. If you see this in the literature, you don't believe it. If it's less than 0.25, which the last structure was, then you believe it as uh, pretty close to done. You could all, this is very analogous to correlation coefficient. Remember, we had a linear correlation coefficient between two functions. Here it would be observed and calculated. If they correlate well, then uh, you're getting close to done. Correlating well is better than 0.7 in this case. And one way of reporting the similarities between two structures. This is not a goodness of fit between model and data. This is a goodness of fit between two models. You just take atom by atom, you go through, and you measure the distance between them. And uh, that root mean squared deviation of all the distances over all the atoms, or all the key atoms, core atoms, carbon alphas, or maybe even uh, a, a smaller core than that, allows you to, to, to quote a root mean square deviation, which is, has some meaning independent of, of, of how many atoms you have and what proteins you're looking at. Each of these is try to put this on a common scale so you can compare uh, from structure to structure. Now, if we're going to do molecular mechanics, which is common to the empirical method, the, the, quasi, the computational empirical methods and the computational sequence-based methods, we need to... Uh, to, to uh, talk about the, the, the side chains of the prote proteins. We've mainly been talking about uh, the backbones. And just a refresher, this is from the genetic code. Again, the, you know, the blue are the positively charged, and the negative charged, and so forth. They have, they have a chirality. It matters whether you're talking about L amino acids or D amino acids. The way you remember, this is just a mnemonic for remembering it, is that when the hydrogen's pointing towards you, going clockwise, it goes CO, carbonyl, R, this is a side chain, N, corn. Okay? And uh, some of the, tw 19 of these amino acids are, uh, uh, have a chirality there. Glycine does not because it has two, two hydrogens. Instead of an R, it has a hydrogen. And two of the amino acids uh, actually have two centers of uh, chiral asymmetry. Threonine, which has uh, this, the, the side chain, uh, and uh, uh, isoleucine. So they have the, the carbon alpha and the carbon beta are both asymmetric. And one of the very earliest exercises was done when the very first models of proteins were looked at, little uh, peptides um, can do this by hand with some very simple uh, crude models and you can go through systematically there are, there are three bonds along a peptide, long peptide and these are the peptide bond itself, which connects one amino acid to the next one. And that tends to be pretty rigid. It has a partial double-stranded bond, and it tends to be a trans configuration 180 degrees. This is the rotation around the bonds, not the bond angle, but the rotation around the bonds. And, uh, and there are two other bonds that are, that, that are not so rigid, so that these are free, but they're constrained by the clashes that occur that when you rotate around the bond, uh, the, the uh, side chains will... will will clash with other parts of the protein. And so Ramachandran and, co and colleagues went through systematically all the possible phi and psi angles. Uh, these are these two free bonds. And this is shown here, you know, ranging over the full range of phi and psi on the uh, horizontal vertical axes. And you get these little orange regions where even with very bulky side chain groups, which would occur, uh, you get these allowed regions. And these two allowed regions happen to coincide with two of the most popular motifs you find in proteins, which are the 
uh, beta sheet in the alpha helix. And uh, there are other things such as the 310 helix and various other structures that turn up. But those are two, by far the two most common. And the yellow shows how they get extended when you have smaller side chains that allow more parts of space of the confirmation spaces, as it's called, to be inspected. Now, that's a very crude thing that you can do with very simple stick figures. Um, but as you get to more detailed analysis, the ultimate application of all we know about physics, uh, if we could compute them, would be quantum electrodynamics. This is way out of range for any kind of molecule of the size that we're interested in. And then as you go down this list, you get more and more precise programs until you get down to something which is barely computationally feasible for things the size of proteins and a great approximation of all the quantum uh, uh, approximations above it. Every one of these is an approximation, but each one, as you go down, gets more and more approximate. And the main thing that's missing from molecular mechanics that's present in the next step up is the uh, polarization of electrons. In other words, is you, in molecular mechanics, you assume the electron clouds are basically spherical. And this is a huge loss, but it, it still is computationally very dynamic, uh, demanding. So you don't get that asymmetric uh, polarization that you get um, in hydrogen bonds and many other uh, dipoles. So this is uh, really very, this is basic physics. You can see the first line, force equals mass times acceleration. Basic Newton's law. And, it, and uh, Newton also introduced the calculus to us, so, the, so, the, so you know, he would be very comfortable with the next line, which is that force it can be redefined as the first derivative of energy with respect to position, or radius, um, and then mass is just mass, and we're introducing the subscript I for the atomic, for each atom gets its own um, Newton's law. And then... Uh, Acceleration is just the second derivative of position with respect to time. Now, what kind of time constants are we talking about here? This is the femtosecond range for atomic motion, 10 to the minus 15 seconds. And as you step through, you update this uh, kinetic procedure, you can do it in half-time intervals, updating velocity and position uh, every uh, femtosecond or half femtosecond. So now, what's this energy term? This is, this is what I alluded to in the previous slide as being very approximate. It's semi-empirical. It is based on experiments, not entirely from first principles or not even from the quantum approximations. You will have, say, spectroscopic uh, analyses that will show that the, the, the uh, spring-like motion that two atoms can have when they're connected by a bond is, uh, you know, has a kind of a Hooke's Law type of spring motion. And that's the, e the energy of the bond length, EB, in this uh, sum of all the E's, slide 52. And E theta is the angle that you have as a bond angle bends, and that's a spring-like force. And then uh, omega is this kind of torsion angle that we've been talking about in the phi psi plot, the Ramachandran plot, just before. Van der Waals is the non-bonded contact, which can be either positive or negative. Actually, you should show down at the very bottom of the slide is that there is a, um, a, a repulsive force which is related to the r to the 12th power uh, and a attractive force 
which is r to the sixth power. So as you get closer, it starts to get attracted until you get this hard sphere repulsion as you get a little bit closer. Electrostatic inter interactions are the longest range effects. All these covalent bonds, B and theta and omega, are short range. Van der Waals are short range. Electrostatic is slightly longer range because they, it's a 1 over R, where R is the distance between the two atoms. And those are the main terms that enter into all molecular mechanics, whether they're used in crystallography or whether they're used in ab initio. Now, this is the state of the art for ab initio. Just the very most recent uh, cast competition resulted in a very clear winner, by some criteria at least. Um, the Baker Lab, here, the URL is down here, is the number of standard deviations away for the mean in terms of the number of correct, uh, or the score for the number of correct predictions, here out at around 30, where the mean is close to zero. Uh, and uh, even with this huge advance uh, for the field in prediction, still the kind of, this is a typical RMS standard deviation between the real structure, which was kept hidden from sight from all these competitors until it was known, but not, not to the competitors, um, and then revealed, and the RMS deviation was six, or four, or five in that, in that range, um, depending on the structure, and whether you include all the atoms or just the core ones. And this is not adequate, as we saw on that slide, actually, from the same group earlier on. And why, and another way of looking at this is now, that was a, those were predicted structures. These are now observed structures. The purple is uh, comparing two structures, both of which were done by X-ray crystallography. And uh, along the red axis here is present uh, sequence identity, ranging from zero to close to 100%, say 96 plus percent. And the green axis is the RMS root mean square deviation between structure one and structure two. And uh, you can see that, think of this uh, purple curve as uh, starting in the lower right, where you have very high sequence identity um, and less than one angstrom root mean deviation. That is, uh, that means that when you solve two proteins that are, that are very similar in sequence, you will get very similar structures. That's good. That bodes well for structural modeling, although that is not structural modeling, I mean, not homology modeling. Then as you go down in sequence identity, the purple curve starts to slope up and up until it starts curving up towards 2.74 and beyond. Uh, it gets harder and harder to do these uh, structural alignments. And so four angstroms is uh, um, the sort you would get from homology modeling at less than 20 or 30 percent sequence identity. And this is what I said earlier, why we're trying to get enough proteins populating, this, this is all known proteins here being compared, you want enough populating it so you never have to go below 35% into this uh, twilight zone where you really can't make good, um, uh, you, you don't find good RMS deviations between two known crystal structures. Now as we do protein dynamics, using the molecular, mecha molecular mechanics approximation we talked about, these can be applied to, uh, to not only to predict a static structure or a series of steps in a uh, protein process, but the dynamics of folding. 
from a completely unfolded protein as it might be coming off of the ribosome. And this, this is something for which there are relatively few experimental methods, and so this is clearly a valuable contribution. But the, there's a problem with doing a, a theoretical calculation that's hard to um, empirically verify. But in any case, to do the, the, one of the larger tasks, and uh, IBM and others are, are sinking significant uh, resources and in infrastructure of this, but doing your fifth, your femtosecond time scale over a one microsecond simulation, you can easily do the math, that's uh, 10 to the minus 6 divided by 10 to the minus 15th is about 10 to the ninth such steps, each of which involves this big uh, calculation that we just went through all the energy terms on. But that's been done for this, and you can see the, bl the, one, the blue and the red represent the calculated and the observed uh, structure at one point in the dynamic simulation. When you have a protein three-dimensional structure, you can try to dock it with small molecules. This could be easier in principle because you can keep both the small molecule and the protein relatively rigid as you dock them. There has to be some flexibility, hence the name flex for one of these programs. Um, and overall, the results are intriguing enough that you might want to use it as an alternative in the few cases where you have the three-dimensional structure of a protein, but for some reason you can't stru solve the three-dimensional structure of the complex. But you must remember that actually, even though we cited that, that the solving a protein structure might be $100,000, solving a complex once you have the protein structure is actually considerably less than that. But in any case, this is, this is uh, encouraging where you have in the order of 0.25 to 1.84 as a root mean squared deviation uh, between the predicted and the experimental binding modes of small molecule. You can imagine that it, to be off by, by 1.8 angstroms, it must be docking in roughly the right pocket, but maybe at the wrong angle or, yeah, maybe slightly off. Okay. So the last topic is the, the issue of crosstalk. As we talk about protein three-dimensional structures, we try to find homologs. And we often find homologs within an organism, paralogs. And these paralogs and alternative splice forms of a protein are potential toxic side reactions of a particular drug. And you can see that many of these drugs are aimed at family members. For example, the top two are part of the steroid binding family, which we have uh, already introduced uh, once and it will be in, a, in an upcoming slide. And uh, what, when you uh, consider that these proteins, this, that particular class of proteins interacts both with a small molecule, which is a, either a natural or artificial steroid, or thyroid-like, which is a steroid-like compound, uh, then, and it binds to a target nucleic acid, and both the nucleic acid and the small molecule have potential for crosstalk. And here's the nucleic acid part of the story, and in the next slide we'll show the small molecule part of the story. But the nucleic acid part, you have two protein domains similar to one another. This is a, another example of the symmetry that we started this talk and ended last talk with. The symmetry here is you have these two, they can be direct or inverted repeats, um, separated by little spacers here. Uh, so the DNA is in yellow, and the little spacers are in uh, sort of this, the gray and CPK colors. 
and the protein domains are in green and, and white, where the green and white are structurally similar to one another. It's hard for you to appreciate them going around like that, but um, this is to em this is emphasize the the uh, the, uh, dir the direct or inverted repeat here. Now that's the DNA interaction, and this is the ligand binding. You can see uh, the estradiol is this small yellow uh, ligand, and the tamoxifen is <coughs> which uh, is the uh, larger ligand. This is something that's important in uh, 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 treating breast cancer that might be responsive to uh, uh, estrogen binding uh, drugs. Uh, so this is the, the the part of the the protein that has two parts or three parts here: the estrogen binding domain. The little red thing is an activator peptide, and then there's the DNA binding component. Now, where's what are the crosstalk we have here? You can see that the that the these wide variety of different uh, steroid-like protein binding uh, domains. They bind to vitamin D3, uh, retinoic acids, uh, such as those that occur in uh, in uh, uh, developmental processes and in vision, uh, thyroid, which regulates our metabolism, and uh, estrogen, testosterone, and so forth. All of these things have fairly similar small molecule binding sites, and the DNA sequence that they bind are these half sites, which are very closely conserved in all the members of this big family. And the only one of the main differences is the distance between these can vary. And the distance here is indicated on the far left hand, uh, lower left here. DR3 means direct repeat with three nucleotides in between those two half sites. Um, IR0 means an inverted repeat with zero nucleotides between the half sites. DR15 is direct repeat with 15 nucleotides and so on. And you see each family member has a distinct ligand and nucleic acid, although there's a lot of similarity in the ligands and a lot of similarity in the nucleic acids. How do we, last line of the slide 61, target one member of this protein family or other protein families. For, in some cases, you will have complete artistic control, not only on the small molecule, but of the protein itself. If you have a small molecule that looks like ATP, you can inhibit all sorts of ATP binding proteins. Uh, if you're lucky, you can inhibit a specific class of ATP binding proteins, but getting, knocking out a particular member of a class is hard. And you can see here, sort of on the right-hand side, these three chemical structures. The adenine part are these, are these uh, five- and six-membered fused rings. And uh, attached to them are these uh, side chains. The first one, all black structure, is a known in inhibitor of protein kinases in general. And the, the red additions are how to make that a little bit bulkier so that it, will not, it no longer will bind to protein kinases in general. Now, why would you want to make this inhibitor not bind to protein kinases? Well, now, if it doesn't bind to any protein kinase very well because it's too bulky, it doesn't fit anymore, then you can carve an amino acid out of one of the protein kinases by doing um, uh, homologous recombination or, or transgenic mutating that particular, the nucleic acid encoding that gene. And you will have this kind of ability to manipulate both the chemical and the protein target in, in cases where, as we'll get to in the last three lectures, where we're analyzing 
uh, systems biology networks, you want to be able to target a particular protein at a time by having a known ligand protein interaction where you minimize the crosstalk by engineering this specific interaction. You start with a specific interaction for the class, and then you engineer it so it hits one of them. So that way you can do a time course, say, just knocking out that particular protein quickly or letting it come back. And this shows the results down at the bottom here. You start out with these two different kinases, um, uh, CDK2 involved in, in uh, cell cycling and uh, 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 CAM kinase 2. Uh, both of these should, would bind to the original black inhibitor, um, and hence there would be significant uh, crosstalk. And here, the interfering dosages in micromolars are shown in the three columns here for the three different compounds, right underneath each of them. And you can see that, 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 uh, that, uh, that, that the uh, lower the number, the better it binds. So when you take uh, these, if you take these now binding pockets and carve them out, and that's what the little wedge cut out for the two lowest ones, CDK2 derivative AS1 and, and CAM kinase 2 AS1 derivative, now that you can see they have a much improved binding constant to, the bulk, to even the bulkiest derivatives. And this is uh, mediated by a, a threonine, to phenyl, uh, threonine or phenylalanine at position 38. It's changed to a glycine. Glycine is obviously smaller than a threonine or a phenylalanine at that position and makes room for the, the drug uh, just in the same way that the, the changing the tyrosine to a phenylalanine made room for the dideoxy terminator in the earlier example. So, in summary, we have talked about protein three-dimensional structure and how we can program proteins, basically. How we can use bits of proteins that we may not be able to predict a priori from scratch, how we get from a sequence to a ligand. But we can take parts that we know and rearrange them in interesting combinations. We can build up databases of binding constants to combinations of combinatoric libraries of nucleic acids, of peptides, of small molecules, and we can put these together in novel combinations that allow us to do uh, network analysis and ask what protein does what uh, um, event. Okay, so uh, thank you. Until next time.